Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The latest news out of Syria focuses on U.S.-backed Syrian fighters who are still working to push out ISIS from the war-torn country. This is important because President Trump has announced the U.S. will withdraw 2,000 troops from Syria by April. What remains of Syria today? And who is left there almost eight years after the civil war began? The war killed an estimated one-half million Syrians and displaced another 12 million. Syrians like Naji Aldabon and his family, who fled their home in 2012 and eventually made it to the U.S. as refugees. Their story is told in a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoon series by New Haven residents Jake Halpern and cartoonist Michael Sloan. Coming up, we'll hear from Halpern about his plans to turn this Syrian family story into a graphic novel. First, we wanted you to hear the story of Naji and his family firsthand. Naji came to our studio with his mother, Adiba, in January. Adiba and Naji, welcome to where we live. No problem. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you for inviting us. Uh, Americans hear about Syria because of the long time uh, civil war there. But tell us a little bit about the, your native country. Uh, Naji, I'll start with you. What do you remember about your home? Where in Syria are you from? Um, from Homs. I'm 17 years old. Uh, 10 years uh, that I lived in Syria was the most happy and fun years that I lived in my life. Why was it um, the most fun years? Tell me about your life there. What did you do and um, about a little bit more about the town of Holmes? So uh, there were, I went to school with my all my cousins, my friends, my family that I have lived with uh, from the uh, when I uh, born till I became nine, ten years old. We went to schools together. Um, same language. We used to uh, have the holidays together with our families, which is uh, so much different than having it uh, just by yourself. So family is very important in Syria to be around your relatives. Yes, yeah. Naji is comfortable speaking in English after attending school in Connecticut for two and a half years. His mother, Adiba, is also learning English, but she's most comfortable speaking in Arabic. I asked Adiba to describe the home she had to leave behind when they decided to escape to Jordan. We lived on the second floor. There was a room for the kids, Naji, Amal, and Hela. They had a room painted watermelon pink. I'm not quite sure how to say it. My room was a bright green, and the living room was white. The parlor was blue. I picked these colors because I liked them. Most houses in Syria are basically one color, all white, but Ibrahim and I wanted our house to be colorful. So you were very proud of your home in Syria? For sure. It was our dream to build a family and a home together, me and my husband Ibrahim. Uh, your, uh, your husband, I assume, wasn't able to come because he had to work. Tell us about your father, his name, and what did he do in Syria? Um, he is uh, Ibrahim, uh, my father. He had uh, phone stores, his own phone stores in Syria. He, uh, in the war, they took him to jail for 40 days for no reason. Uh, and at this time, I was uh, 
nine years old where I uh, saw him in the jail. It was a very hard time, you know, to see him. Uh, uh, and there's the bars between me and him. So it was tough uh, life after the war started. Uh, after he got out from the jail, we heard a lot of stories that after people get out of the jail, they take him again and same thing happens. So he said, it's better for me to run away and they shoot me than to take me again. So we decided to get out of Syria and leave everything. Adiba, I wondered if you could uh, walk back uh, when uh, the uh, military came to your home to question your husband. Uh, what did you think was going to happen? When the conflict started in Syria, we never expected that what happened would actually come to pass. At the beginning, when the crisis first started, we started to have dreams that someone was coming for us. Every day, we had those dreams, and then they really came true. So you lived with that fear every day? Yes, yes. Uh, so when they took your father, your husband away, what did you do? When they took my husband to prison, I'm an Arab woman and I was used to staying at home. Not that Arab women never go out, of course they go out and live normal lives, but they aren't used to going to places, you know, like courthouses. So that was hard for me. But I feel that at times, this internal strength would come to me to bring my husband back to my home and my children so that we could all be together again. Was your husband tortured when he was in prison? Definitely. I went to visit him in prison. I didn't recognize him. He was standing in front of me and I didn't know it was him. He was there for 40 days because of how he was tortured. It changed all of his uh, uh, body, his face, everything was different. When he finally came home, do you remember what you said to him? When he came home, I, I, I remember he slept for about two hours. And then suddenly I told him, I woke him up quickly and said, get up, the army's in the neighborhood. He was afraid that they would come back and take him again. Can you imagine? Najee, you have four other siblings? Yes. Um, do you remember what you told, said to your father when you saw him again? What was the reaction of the children? Um, for me, I couldn't talk to him. I was crying so much. He came in the middle of the night, and we were waiting for him for 40 days. So it was so hard for me. So when he came, I also was crying, and I slept on her his uh, lap. After my dad got out, he started to tell us what he saw in the jail. You know, they're lucky that they got out without uh, missing a hand or leg or something because they had taken people who got out with, like, no tongue, um, no leg. Like, we are so lucky to see him like that. Even he got uh, a lot of tortures that changed the way he looks. Um, we, we were still happy that he's like that. Um, so we started to go to a different places in Syria. So we closed our house, you know, like you're going to visit someone. You don't take that many stuff with you. We didn't take anything. We just closed the door um, and we went to my grandma in Idlib in Syria and we stayed there. Uh, when uh, you were making that journey to the border, was your uh, grandmother able to come or who else came with you? Yeah, so the whole family uh, were close to each other and everything ha was happening to everyone. Um, so we all went together, we all, me and my, uh, our family, my dad, he have uh, four brothers, my uncles, and they have also children and families, and my grandma. 
my grandpa passed away in Syria before the war, so we all had to live together at the same time on the same border. This is where we live. I'm speaking to West Hartford resident Najee Aldabon and his mother, Adiba. They moved to the U.S. as refugees in 2016. Their story was the focus of a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoon series that's now being expanded into a graphic novel. In 2012, their family left their home in Syria during the Civil War. I asked them to describe what it was like to cross the border into Jordan. We left Syria for Jordan. To get there, we had to cross the border on foot. We walked for about about three hours. There were women and children. I'll never forget what it was like to live through that moment. We had our children with us. It was about 7.30 at night. And we had to leave so that the armed forces, the Syrian army, wouldn't notice us because we were crossing the border without passports. We were being smuggled out. I had to get out with my husband and children because I had gone to court and paid for my husband's release, but his case was still open, so it was impossible that they would let him leave the country. And the stuff we saw, nothing is legal happening, so everyone's killing everyone. So we just had to go outside by uh, somehow. So we went on the borders. We, um, it was very dark in the night. Um, there was women's, old people, uh, children crying, and everyone just had a bag of clothing. And uh, you just want to run because the uh, Syrian uh, military is on the borders. And uh, the same place that we were on, uh, one night before, there has to, nine people died on it. So it's dangerous and we had to run. Uh, we hear there are many refugees in Jordan. Uh, once you were able to cross the border safely, what happened? Um, so once you cross the borders um, in the night, they'll say, go and follow this light until you get there. So we did that. We went. Uh, it was very hard. You can't see what you're walking on. Um, and there was a, a, like a small camp. And it was very cold, nothing to cover yourself. And you go there. Uh, you uh, They take your name, where, you, where your birthday is, and create a certificate for you to live in Jordan. Adiba, did you feel that you and your family were safe while you were in Jordan, or was it a whole different uh, experience that you still felt uh, fearful about what would happen to you and your children? We were definitely comfortable, to tell the truth, and we just... I remember I called my kids together in the camp, the four of them, and I hugged them close, and all of us went to sleep. We just wanted to sleep without hearing the sounds of the war and the fighting outside. But of course, at the same time, on our second day in Jordan, I woke up and I thought, what? I mean, I have four kids with me and my husband. What are we going to do? How do we expect to start a life with four children in Jordan? I'd say that this is where the hardship started. Definitely a different kind of hardship from before. But the hardship of how do you secure a, a, a home for your children? How do you get back even a little piece of our old life? Adiba told me she and her husband were able to settle down and rent a house. Things started changing for the better when she met an American named Kayla who encouraged her to take a look at her own potential. I used to draw, and Kayla said to me, what happened was that I cooked for her, and she said, Adiba, why don't you work? I said to her, what do you mean work? That's impossible. I don't know anything. 
and she told me, you know, everything. So she helped me out. She brought me a sketchbook, I remember, in charcoal, because she had seen charcoal drawings. I used to draw in pencil. So she brought me the charcoal and said, you'll start drawing and you'll be a cook and you're going to get there. So my husband and I started, you know, a small business from home. We met a man from a church named Rami. I want to mention his name because he deserves it. Groups started to come over and I would prepare a buffet for them in my house. Americans would come over and taste Adiba's cooking and they would buy my drawings. And that's what helped my husband and me to start out our life in Jordan. The family lived in Jordan for more than four years before finally getting visas to come to the United States as refugees. Naji and Adiba told me why it was so important for them to be able to come to the U.S. Uh, refugees in Jordan, they, they, we can't uh, work, um, we can't travel. Yeah. So there was a lot of limitations for our lives. So America was like when, when you're in the middle of the ocean and someone gives you his hand to help you. Adiba described how happy they were to finally get the call from the U.N. Refugee Agency. We got the call and they said, do you want to move to America? We were so happy, I, I can't even. I said, okay, Najee will go to school and Rahaf will go to school. What had weighed on my heart, what had pained me, was in the morning when Najee and Rahaf couldn't go to school and they would see the other kids going off to school. That was hard. Uh, so uh, when you got the news, obviously you were very excited, uh, but um, that was only a visa to allow you, your husband, and your children to go to the U.S. Who did you have to leave behind in Jordan? I left, you could say I left a piece of myself behind, my sister. She was the only one who I had with me when I left Syria because my family had split up. Everyone took the shortest path they could to get out of Syria. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're bringing you the story of the Aldeban family. 17-year-old Najee and his mother Adiba are in studio with us. They arrived in the U.S. two and a half years ago as refugees. Their story would become the focus of a Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoon series in the New York Times called Welcome to the New World. After the break, we'll hear about when they left Jordan, and we'll find out more about their new life in Connecticut. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live, from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The Aldeban family left Syria in 2012 during the Civil War. They lived in Jordan, among the 1.4 million other Syrian refugees who were all waiting for a chance to start a new life. After more than four years, the Aldeban family finally got the chance to leave Jordan. The oldest son, Najee, and his mother, Adiba, came to our studios to talk about their journey to the U.S. Their story was told in a 2018 Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoon series in the New York Times. Uh, can you describe um, the, the moment when you got your plane tickets uh, to fly from Jordan to the U.S.? This was in 2016? I mean, the feeling is really indescribable. It's hard to put into words. It's a feeling... I, I can't describe it. I actually had my son Ahmad in Jordan, and he didn't have a nationality. He wasn't Syrian and he wasn't American. He was in exile. He didn't have... And that hurt me. A friend of Ibrahim's lived in Connecticut, so he served as their sponsor to bring them here. Adiba and Najee told me they Googled pictures of Connecticut to prepare themselves for the snow and cold weather. 
When Adiba and Ibrahim and their children arrived in Connecticut, they were met at the airport by the refugee resettlement agency IRIS and by journalist Jake Halpern, who they would get to know later. The Aldebon family arrived in the U.S. on what would turn out to be a significant date, November 6, 2018. Well, something that's interesting about your story, obviously it's a very momentous time to move here, but you actually flew here uh, during the U.S. presidential election in 2016. Had you been following that at all? We were following the elections from Jordan. It was a shock to tell the truth. When we got to the airport and met Jake, he came home and turned on the TV. You know, of course we didn't know the language, and we didn't know anything. People were happy, they said. It's election day, and President Trump won. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was your reaction? You said you didn't know very much about Trump, but as you uh, came to know about uh President Donald Trump. Were you concerned at all as new refugees uh, living in uh, Connecticut about some of what they've, uh, he and his supporters have said about immigrants? So we were, frankly, my husband and I, we were happy we had gotten to America because we had been hearing that they were going to stop accepting refugees, you know? The family felt lucky to have made it to a new country where they could restart their lives. Their new home would be in Manchester, Connecticut. They found an apartment with help from IRIS, one of the refugee resettlement agencies in our state. So, Najee, uh, tell me what your reaction was when you uh, walked into this home or apartment in Manchester uh, and your younger siblings. So when I first came, I was so happy, especially that I couldn't go to school in Jordan. So I was thinking of a lot of things. I was tired. Um, the first time that I ride an airplane, and uh, when I saw the house, it looks like, to me, it looks like uh, toys. When I saw the table, the couches, like the movies we see in the, uh, on the TV. So I was very happy about it. Were you worried at all about uh, starting school in a new country? And uh, at that point, you were still uh, learning English or you needed to learn English? No, I was very, uh, after what I saw in the war in Syria, I came here, I was so much excited. You know, I, my English wasn't that good, but I still have uh, hope that now there is a way for me to make uh, my life when I get older different. We heard a lot of uh, stories when we were in Jordan about America and the people. But once we came here, uh, it's totally different. You know, everyone in the street would smile to you. So that was very surprising and nice to us. How long did that sense of uh, feeling welcomed last for you? Because I understand that your husband got a disturbing phone call. How long did that? Did you live in Manchester before that happened? For about three months, we were really living the dream. It was safe. We had everything. The kids could play outside. The weather was just gorgeous. Until one day, we got a call at about 8.30 at night. When we got that call, the person called about three times, and he left a message. That call, frankly, after we had felt safe, we had felt safe in America. Everything was turned on its head completely. What did that person say on the voicemail? I'll just give you the gist because what he said was really awful. But I can say that he told us, you better get out of America. America is not for you. You better, you have 24 hours to get out of America. And he said other awful things that I can't repeat. He gave me the number of the house and the street. 
At this point, I didn't want to let anybody out of the house. The FBI investigated the threatening phone call, but never found out who did it. The family didn't feel safe in their home in Manchester, so Iris, the resettlement agency, helped Adiba, Ibrahim, and the kids move into a hotel. For a few months in Manchester, they felt like they'd finally been able to build a home, a life, but now? It was back to exactly how we started, I would say, in Jordan. Meanwhile, the family's stay at the hotel stretched on for months. Uh, Naji, how did that um, experience impact you? So you were going to school, as well as I think your, your younger siblings in Manchester. You had to leave the house that you were in to go to a hotel. Uh, you were worried about uh, who this person was that was threatening your family. Was it hard to uh, keep your mind on your schoolwork and what you were learning? Yeah, so it was very hard, and we went to a hotel that's far away from school, so we had to leave school. And for me, I felt like there's nowhere uh, on this earth safe place to live like all other people. Uh, it made me think that, like, uh, since the war started, we're going to stay like that forever, moving and moving. So you and your siblings were not in school when you were at the hotel? No. We lived in the hotel for about two months. People in the hotel came and went, but we stayed. I remember that Rahaf asked me, Mommy, people come and then they leave. Why are we the only ones who stay in the hotel so long? Why can't we go home? To tell the truth, sometimes it feels like we're living in a movie. So many things have happened, and I don't understand why. Sometimes I'll ask Ibrahim, why us? What happened to us was... I mean, we said, okay, we're going to settle down and start a new life. And then the situation changed. While they were living in the hotel, Naji's father, Ibrahim, found work at an ice cream shop, often working nights. But Adiba worried every time her husband was late coming home from work, did something happen to him? Eventually, they moved to a new town, West Hartford, where a community member named Nancy helped the family find a new apartment. She's a great person. Um, yeah. She actually the, talked to us and she said, don't worry about it. Everything's yeah. going to be fine. So she found us a house in West Hartford. She paid the rent for the first uh, month and she brought us to here. Uh, what was that like uh, the second time trying to find a place to live? So Nancy helped you, yeah. but then you had to start a new school. What was that like for you, Najee? Um, for me, it was like, okay, let's see what's going to happen again. Because uh, I didn't want to feel that much excited excitement. You know, when we first went to Manchester, that excitement that I had left. Because that first time it happened, so I'm not sure if it's going to happen again or again. So I wasn't really happy about it. I was like, let's see what's going to happen next. <laughs> So when you moved to West Hartford, were you able to meet uh, other Muslims or other people from Syria? Were you able to strike up a friendship? Definitely, there definitely were, but very few. And I'll tell you something. Here there's no time for the gatherings that we used to have back in our country, when people would just get together. Here, no, there's no time for that. Work, study, run errands, then home. What about you, Najee, when you met your classmates in West Hartford? How did they react to you or your sister um, once they found out you were from Syria? 
So I found out something real interested in whole high school where I didn't find it in Manchester where they put you with regular classes with uh, people who speaks uh, English first language. So in Hull we found ESOL program where you go there, all people from di different countries who does not have that strong English takes that those classes to help them improve them to become uh, uh, mainstream with other English uh, speakers. Mm -hmm. Did that help you and your sister uh, transition? You felt more welcome at Hall? A lot, actually. When I went to Manchester uh, School, you know, I didn't find that much uh, welcoming. Uh, not from the teacher, but some students. You know, I found some races of uh, students who wasn't weren't nice to me. But when I came to, came to Hall, it was really nice. Um, the classes that I, were, I was in, you know, I understand, like not in Manchester where I'd be sitting, I don't understand what the teacher is talking about. Mm. You mentioned the, some of the kids at Manchester what, that weren't nice to you. What did they say to you? So uh, actually, um, in Manchester, there was uh, a boy who came up to me and he was uh, like, I was walking in the hallway with my sister. He was like, you are a Muslim and the F word, uh, let's fight, get out of here. And I didn't respond to him, I kept walking. Um, after that, the uh, counselor calls me and she say, oh Nadia, what did you do to that uh, guy? And I was like, nothing. He just came up to me and he talked to me that way. He said, no, you talked to him in a bad way and mm. he uh, talked to the counselor about me. Mm. So it's good that you were able to leave that situation. Yes. <laughs> This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm speaking to West Hartford resident Najee Aldaban and his mother Adiba. They came to the U.S. as refugees in 2016. During these stressful months after receiving a threatening phone call, the family had been sharing their experiences with a New Haven-based journalist, Jake Halpern. They met him the day they had arrived at the airport. Coming up, we'll hear more from Jake about his decision to follow the family as they restarted their lives in a new country. I asked Adiba, why did they decide to share their deeply personal journey with Jake and eventually with millions of New York Times readers? So when we were first coming to America, Jake had talked with Iris and said, I want to write the story of this family. They told him not just anybody will want to tell their story, you know. But I was... Ibrahim and I decided that we had to tell our story. We had to show the American people what happened in our country, what continues to happen. It's vital. It's true that it's hard, but we have to tell our story. I told our story to Jake with all the pain that comes with it. It's true that there weren't many happy times. But it was nice to tell the story of me and Ibrahim and our children. To tell our story, to tell the story of a family that came and lived through this difficult period, which was hard to write down. But the people here in America need to read it and learn what's going on. Uh, Jake uh, ended up collaborating with a cartoonist, and so there mm. were uh, these uh, cartoons that showed up in the New York Times, which, yeah. uh, did you know that was a very influential newspaper, that your story was going to be seen by millions? Definitely. I mean, we still haven't fully grasped the idea that our story would win a prize. 
We get this call from Jake. And he says, the story won. He was really happy about it. And we were like, what do you mean it won? We didn't understand what a big deal it was, you know, how much people really liked the story. Meanwhile, your life goes on each and every day. Uh, tell us uh, two years, two years on yes, now. two years and three uh, months. How are you doing? What What is your husband doing for work? Uh, what are you doing? So when I started out, Ibrahim and I are trying to be done with charity. I don't want to depend on charity. I appreciate it, but I want to live a life where Ibrahim and I can rely on ourselves without needing charity. We're done with that, you know? I speak English a little bit. You want to start the life, new life, with five children. This very, very hard. Yeah, but uh, for me, and for my husband, uh, I need to start the life. So after all, all what we had suffered, uh, we wanted to think of a way to change our life, you know. Yeah. And we actually started the same <coughs> businesses that we started in Jordan. Adiba started a business and got insurance to work as a caterer. On Wednesdays in the summer, she ran a booth at Hartford Hospital, where she sold homemade shawarma and falafel to hospital employees. She's also trying to use her talents as an artist to raise money for the family. On the side, I would put together exhibitions. I would do them in any church or any place that would say, Adiba, you can. That was really helpful to have a place where I could put on an exhibition of my drawings. And they'd have me do the catering all at the same time. It was a really, really great opportunity for me. I've loved to draw since I was a little girl. Back when I was seven years old, I was the best at drawing in my class. I know that drawing won't allow me, just like that, to provide for my family. But it's something I love and I can't give it up. I have to draw, you know? Adiba showed us a photo of another drawing she'd done. I brought this drawing of a man. His eyes have this expression. I feel it's an expression of pain and at the same time of strength. And this is the first drawing I made here in America. It's a face with one eye and the woman's covering her mouth. The eye shows her fear. What will I become now in this new life? And covering the mouth is also from fear, because speaking a new language was hard. I made a website and named it adiba.com, A-D-E-E-B-A-H.com. And I put up my drawings. And I hope that people buy the drawings, not because of Adiba, but because they like the drawings. Adiba says she knows selling her art probably won't always pay the bills. So she's hoping to start another business. My dream, to tell you the truth, my dream is to get a food truck. Now, God willing, I made a GoFundMe so that people might donate money to help my husband and me raise the funds to buy a food truck. It would be a great opportunity. I have a skill and I want to offer this thing that I know how to do to the American people. People will love getting the chance to try Syrian food, something different. I hope... I'm sure that they're really going to like it. Adiba, can I ask you today, do you feel safe living where you do? Now? Yes. I feel really, really safe. 
I'm really happy. The people are definitely number one, the American people. I'll never forget the goodness of any person. Without mentioning names, I can't forget any person who helped me. So many people, so many. I frankly never imagined how kind the American people would be. I'm sending a message to my family and my people, telling them it's as if I were living in my own country. It's true that the language was hard at first, but now I have lots of friends, and I consider them my brothers and sisters. Since Adiba and her family arrived in the U.S., the rhetoric and official position of the U.S. towards refugees has changed, from travel bans that restrict people from countries like Syria to a drastic reduction in the number of refugees accepted into the U.S. each year. Do you think about uh, the many refugees that are still left in Jordan uh, who may not have that opportunity that your family did because of the political climate? Well, I can't get into the topic too much. My sister, she has a case, and my mother-in-law does too. They've been put on hold, but I hope they'll release the hold so they can come, and everyone else. Uh, When uh, you think about uh, your native country, Syria, uh, there's still violence there. I'm just wondering, do you ever think you'll be able to go back? Definitely, definitely. It's my dream to go back to my home and my country. But it's a nearly impossible dream as long as Bashar al-Assad is still there. And we actually received a video from our neighbor for our house all damaged and the rocks. So we lost it. We lost our phone stores. So it it's impossible to come back. How did that make you feel when you saw the video of your house that you cherished uh, destroyed? I told you about all the colors that I painted. Each room a different color. I saw all the colors mixed together. They were a mess. I could feel our dreams and our memories. Everything sweet was gone. You said that life in Syria is impossible now. Is that because of uh, President Bashar al-Assad and what has happened there? Yes, it's it's impossible to come back, and uh, even you know you wouldn't be sure that we, oh you're gonna come back and nothing will happen again. You know we're not sure. It's not easy to tell people that you don't know uh, about uh, these personal experiences. What do you want Americans to know uh, specifically about your story? We have nice customs and traditions. Really, our family ties. When our mother and father get old, they stay with us in our homes. We always maintain our connections with family. When a young man turns 18, he wants to stay at home until it's time to get married and start his own home. Najee, what is your dream for the future? Um, my dream, I want to become a nurse and uh, to make some money and after that become a businessman. That was Naji Aldaban and Adiba Al-Nemar telling us about their journey from war-torn Syria to Connecticut. Naji is a student at Hall High School in West Hartford. Meanwhile, his father has found a stable job at a private school. And as a family, they're working on getting a food truck started. You can see Adiba's artwork on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we'll talk to the journalist who helped bring their story to millions. Jake Halpern and Michael Sloan created a cartoon series about the family. It won a Pulitzer in 2018. More after the break. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel.
Jake Halpern is a New Haven-based journalist and author. His nonfiction cartoon series, Welcome to the New World, with New Haven artist Michael Sloan, follows the lives of two Syrian families who came to Connecticut as refugees. We just heard from one of them, the Aldebon family. The series won a Pulitzer Prize in 2018. Now Halpern is working with Sloan on a graphic novel about the family. Jake Halpern, welcome to where we live. Hey, thanks for having me on. So tell us how this uh, cartoon project started, and when did you first hear about the Aldebon family? Yeah, so I've been talking to my editor at the New York Times, Bruce Headlam, whose idea this originally was to do a serialized, basically a comic, a true comic that would be reported out and then appear in the paper every other week giving you updates on a refugee family. And uh, the question was, what family were we going to profile? So I called up Chris George, who uh, runs Iris here in New Haven, and I said, Chris, could you help me find a family? And he said, you know, why don't you, uh, why don't you profile a family from the day they arrive, like be there when they, when they show up? And he said, you know, this is back in 2016, I should add. He said, we have uh, two families who are brothers, and they're arriving on Election Day. Do you want to come out and meet them? And this kind of kicked off this two-and-a-half-year odyssey that I've been on profiling this family. I should just say a word about Election Day. Um, When he said Election Day, I didn't really think it was that big of a deal because if you remember, everyone in the media was saying (laughs) Hillary was a shoe-in, and it didn't seem like it was going to be an especially meaningful day, especially in the context of refugees. So I went, and we we met the family when they showed up in New Haven. It was just a kind of quick hello. And then got home that night, started following the returns, and woke up at 2.30 in the morning and saw the Times headline that says Trump triumphs. And I immediately thought of this family. And I thought, oh, my gosh, they landed in one country— and are basically going to wake up at another. That sounds like a great peg for a journalist to follow uh, refugee families coming in on election day. Uh, But it's also challenging because you don't know if they're going to want to open up to you. They don't know you. So how did you cultivate that trust? There were two brothers, uh, the Aldabans, who um, you've met in Hartford, uh, was Ibrahim and Adiba, and then Issa and Amina were here in New Haven. And what I did was I made arrangements to go meet both of the families on separate trips with Syrian translators. And I first visited the family in New Haven. And that family, um, I took as my translator a very talented local artist and architect, Mohammed Hafez, who I know you've had on the show. And so I said to Mohammed, who was a friend of mine, I said, will you go with me and help me kind of translate and ask them if they'll participate? And he said, yeah, Jake, I'll go. But I'm going to be straight with you. I think it's a long shot that you're going to get what you want because I have worked with Syrian refugee families here in New Haven and I'm a Muslim Syrian native Arabic speaker and it's taken me sometimes as much as two years to really connect with uh, a given family and get them to open up. You are a non-Arabic speaking white guy who's not Muslim, I'm Jewish. Uh, it's, it's a hard sell to, to have that trust. But I said, let's give it a shot. And I showed up at, at Issa's house. This is the brother that lives in New Haven. Said hello, started to explain who I was. And within 15 minutes, Issa was telling me the story of how he had been abducted by Assad's men um, and tortured. 
And I said to him at some point, are you comfortable sharing this? And he said, if we can get the truth out there and that strikes a blow against the Assad regime, then I'm more than happy. Uh, at the time, the Aldabans, uh, Ibrahim and Adiba were living in Manchester, and I went to their home and had a similar encounter. Adiba made me tea and offered me food, which she always does, amazing hospitality. And then they started to tell me the story of what happened during the siege of homes. I, I like to point out that uh, we live in a time that is characterized by a profound mistrust of the other. It's this idea that these foreigners, these refugees, these kind of people that are, that are not us are going to come and, and, and we can't trust them. And for me, what was so powerful about reporting the story was that it was ultimately an act of trust and faith on both sides. This is where we live. My guest today is Jake Halpern, who, along with New Haven artist Michael Sloan, profiled two Syrian families who came as refugees to Connecticut. Their nonfiction graphic cartoon series in the New York Times documented the family's experience, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in 2018. Jake is now working on a longer nonfiction graphic novel telling the family's story, which will be published later this year. I asked Jake about how he saw the children and couples he followed change over the course of the time he spent with them. I think that, you know, it's like a long exposure photograph. I've been following them uh, for two and a half years, so I've seen, I've seen the kids go from speaking almost no English to speaking really pretty close to fluent English. And Naji, who you had on the show, he made honor roll at his, at his high school uh, this semester. Uh, you know, it's a West Hartford High School. These are good schools. So also I should say, you know, Adiba will tell you um, that she was, you know, she was a stay-at-home mom in Syria. Her husband worked and she kind of tended to the kids and didn't go out much and, and was okay with that. Like they had a good life there. She was happy. And I think that when they got to the States, it became clear that, you know, if they've got five kids Ibrahim doesn't have a college degree. Um, both parents are going to have to work. And Adiba, she stepped up big time. She'd always been an artist, but not really in a professional capacity. And she started having shows where she started selling her artwork. She's an amazing cook, but she decided she was going to start a catering business. So uh, that was kind of amazing to see Adiba's transformation. And I got to give Ibrahim credit, too, because that is a major transition in the domestic life. And, and Ibrahim has been bullishly supportive of her em- empowerment and her agency and her trying to step up and um, really play an active role in, in providing for the family. That's not easy. Um, and so I, I've witnessed that over the last two and a half years. And um, that will definitely hopefully be in, in the book. And um, I'm curious, of, as you are working on this graphic novel, has the family at all uh, been concerned about, again, their lives uh, being portrayed uh, uh, in this way? Because it is very hard for people to, to pull the curtain back, so to speak, and, and having yeah. this all uh, in, you know, to be open in, in the public once it's published. Yeah, we've talked about it a lot. Um, so one aspect of it was 
um, I want this 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 book to help empower you. Uh, we we wanted Adiba to be hired by our publisher Macmillan to do some drawings in the back. So we did that. That was great. And um, I agreed that I was going to share royalties um, with the family, <laughs> assuming the book sells a few copies. Um, so that was one thing, and we had that conversation early on, so that it was like, let's make this collaborative instead of appropriating, right? Let's 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 make this kind of a team effort. Um, and then the second thing was, you know, uh, how much do you want to open up your lives um, to the public? You know, that's that's intense. Um, I don't think I'd want someone in my house doing that, to be honest with you. Um, and so we had to kind of figure out where they wanted to let me in and where they didn't want me. And I have to say, they they let me in to most places. For example, Naji, and I didn't really appreciate this when I was reporting it for the Times. Naji was the driving force behind them coming to the United States. He was asking his dad every day, "When are we going to go? When are we going to go?" And the dad, Ibrahim was saying, hey, look, it's a difficult situation because my siblings here in Jordan, they have been greenlighted. And my mom, Ibrahim's mom, she wouldn't go until all the siblings were greenlighted. So he was saying, hey, Najee, you're pushing me to go and it's going to effectively break up the family. You got to chill a bit. And Najee was like, we have no future here, dad. There's nothing here. If we don't go now, it's we're going to be stuck. So there was tension there. Ibrahim said it, it, it pained him. And there were times when he was frustrated and just deeply angry with Naji. And then when they came to the States and then they got the death threat, some people in the family were like, hey, Naji, are you, you happy about where we ended up? And it was real. And they, they shared that with me. And I remember very vividly fact-checking that bit where Ibrahim was talking about how upset and angry he was at Naji. And I read it back to both of them. And they kind of looked at each other and they kind of nodded their head and they were like, yeah, that was it, you know. And I tried to convey to them that I I was so grateful that they were so emotionally honest because I said, without that emotional honesty, this is going to be two-dimensional. It's the tension and the, the kind of little moments of pain and difficulty that make this real and human. Again, we're talking with Jake Halpern, who is a New Haven-based journalist and author here on Where We Live. His nonfiction cartoon series, Welcome to the New World, with New Haven artist Michael Sloan, uh, won a Pulitzer Prize in 2018. It followed uh, the lives of two Syrian families who came here as refugees in Connecticut. Uh, Najee told us his dream is to become a nurse, and he seems to be doing pretty well. Uh, When you think about all the time that you spent with them, again, they're each uh, working on realizing their own dreams to them, this journey, what they've been through has been worth it. Naji, I, I tell my own kids about Naji so much, they're almost tired of hearing about <laughs> him because he's, but he's such a, re- a remarkable kid. And part of what makes him remarkable is his, his incandescent positivity. This is a kid who during the siege of homes was responsible at the age of 10 for going out on the street literally stepping over dead bodies, wandering his way through destroyed shops and getting bread for the family. And then he also was pulling down power lines and stripping the copper and selling the copper to scrap dealers so that he could, in his meager way, augment what money the family had so they could eat. 
while his dad is in prison, by the way. And his mom, he's doing this because his mom is home with the baby. And here's this kid who comes to America at age 14, speaking almost no English, and he's this bright, kind, positive young man who's on a honor roll in high school, who just has such a warmth about him. And I swear, whenever I see that kid, I just feel so heartened. It's just, I don't know how he's emerged from this, this kind of cataclysm and retained such emotional strength and such positivity. And it, 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 it kind of lifts my spirits because you kind of think to yourself, if this 16-year-old boy can do it, I better like, you know, shut up and put up and, and do whatever I got to do in my life. Uh, Jacob, before we let you go, tell us more about uh, when your graphic novel will be released and who do you want to have pick it up? Uh, Michael and I have to hand in the manuscript uh, in September. It's quite a long process because Michael has to draw, you know, every page. Um, And then it will be out, I would imagine, either next winter or early next spring, so about a year from now. Uh, There'll be a, a young adult version, an adult version all published by the Macmillan family. What I hope with this story is that kids would be able to to read it and get a sense of these of these refugee kids like like Naji, like Amal, who have come here and you know are looking forward to getting a locker in their school, are don't know where to sit in the lunchroom, have all the same little butterflies in their stomach that that they do despite kind of this facade of otherness, and sometimes it's more than a facade, but often it's not. It's just beyond the hijab or beyond the halting English and somehow feel some sense of connectedness to this family and feel surprised by that sense of connectedness. If it can trigger some pathos, even fleeting pathos, I will feel that my job is done. Jake Halpern, again, thank you for speaking with us. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for, for, for doing this segment. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff with technical help from Ryan Karen King, Carlos Mejia, and David Wurzel. Arabic translation by Aidan Kaplan and voice work by Lily Tyson. You can learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live or download our podcast. Thanks for listening.